James 5, reading from the first verse. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Any Christian who has a real desire to see Christ honored must be grieved by the faults and the failings of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not difficult to look at the church, the different parts of the church, and to see inconsistencies, to see uh, failings, and to be grieved and burdened by them. Very often the lives uh, of professing believers contradict what they claim uh, to believe. The world's very quick, of course, to seize uh, on any shortcomings. Maybe you've had it said uh, to you. Oh yes, well that's Christians for you, isn't it? They say one thing and they do another. Look at him, look at her. They claim to be a Christian and look at what they're doing. Look at what they're saying. And the world, of course, feels, well, if they can find shortcomings and inconsistencies among Christians, that gives them an excuse for not believing the message. Why would I believe 
the gospel when that's the kind of people that it produces. And all too often we have to admit that there may well be justice in the things that the world says. Christians have given the world too many excuses to speak badly of the gospel and to speak badly of the Savior. Believers should feel a burden for the purity of the church. And of course, it has to begin with our own lives. Very easy to see the faults and feelings of others, the specks in the eyes of others, and not to be aware of the log in our own eye. We are to be concerned for the church of Jesus Christ. We don't live as solitary individuals in the Christian life. We are part of the body. If we grieve over the sins of the church, if that burdens us, how much more must the Lord be grieved? We're exhorted in Scripture, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit must be grieved by so much that he sees in the professing church and in the lives of professing Christians. And so it is essential that we know how to deal with these situations. And it's interesting that at the very end of his letter, we didn't know how James ended. We were trying to guess how he would finish the letter. We might well not have expected him to finish in the way that he does. We can't anticipate. Of course, now we know, and we've just read it a few minutes ago, we know how he finishes. But Clearly, this is something that is of concern to James. So now, in God's providence, we come to the, the closing verses of James 5. We're looking at verses 19 and 20, restoring the wanderer. Restoring the wanderer. As we look at these last two verses of the letter, we see, first of all, a constant danger. A constant danger. The end of his letter, it seems this is something that is weighing on James's heart as he thinks of finishing off what he wants to say to these scattered Christians. This is something that's important. And he's still thinking of the realities of life in the congregations of God's people. If one of you should wander from the truth. And it's clear James is not thinking of this as a distant prospect, something that's really quite unlikely, but it might happen. No, it's much more of a reality that James knows will come wherever God's people are gathered. There's always in the fellowship of believers the, the danger of a departure from the truth of God. In an individual or in whole congregations, you think of letters to the, the churches in Revelation and sometimes the, the extent of the spread of false teaching there and departures from the truth. And so it is a real danger. Uh, we have to take account of and prepare for. And it's interesting, as we read the New Testament, you see how quickly this kind of issue arose in the church. Sometimes we might have a very idealized view of the early church. 
And to feel well for maybe the, the first century or more, the church was pure and they had the apostles and everything was, was going well. And it was only later then that problems arose with departures from the truth. But you read the book of Acts, you read Paul's letters, the letters of Peter or John, or as we said, those letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and it's clear that departures from the truth occurred very early on in the church. It's not something that they had to wait for and something that was in the distant horizon. Very quickly, these things blew up as problems. Think of how much of Paul's letters address issues like this, departures from the truth, threats to the spiritual health of God's people. It didn't take long. Of course, that reflects the life of the Old Testament church as well. Think of how often the Israelites departed from the truth of God, listened to false teachers. And so we find that this was a constant danger for the church and still is a constant danger. Wandering from the truth of God. It may be wandering in terms of belief, uh, embracing error, false teaching that contradicts what the Bible says. It may be wandering in conduct, living inconsistently with what the Bible says. And indeed, of course, uh, embracing false teaching. And you often see this. Embracing false teaching leads to ungodly living. And that connection is frequently made in the New Testament. Those who believe error very often in their lives will drift also from the standards of God's word. And there are many examples of that. That's why, of course, sound teaching, sound theology matters. Because that shapes how we live. Wandering from the truth. And of course, James is thinking of the revealed truth of God. That's the essential guide that we have. What should we believe? How do we discern out of the things that we hear what's true and what's false? And God has given us an infallible guidebook. Remember what Jesus says in John 17 and verse 17, your word is truth. An ignorance of God's word is a very dangerous thing. Remember Jesus' rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees, the people who should have known the scriptures. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And so, because they were not holding on to the truth, they learned it, they learned it off by heart. That's the way the whole education of scribes and Pharisees worked. They, in one sense, they knew the word, and yet in another sense, they didn't know it. Because it wasn't taking root 
in their hearts and minds. It wasn't shaping how they thought. And so they were departing from the truth. And so it may be for us. It may not be that you don't know the truth, that you haven't heard it. And I trust you've sat under faithful teaching of the truth year after year, here or elsewhere. So it may not be that you haven't heard the truth of God. But the danger may be it hasn't taken root in your heart. You haven't really embraced it and believed it and accepted it and shaped your your thinking around the truth of God. And it's that kind of situation that James envisages, wandering from the truth. Sometimes, of course, the wandering can be due to our own willfulness. It it doesn't just happen by, by accident. If we're neglecting the fellowship of God's people, if we don't really have a taste for the study of God's word, if that isn't a priority for us, and we don't meet with the Lord's people to learn together and encourage one another, then we are on a dangerous road. The Lone Ranger Christian Uh, is someone who's putting himself uh, in a very dangerous situation. And the Christian who doesn't give time personally and along with other Christians to the Word of God and to prayer uh, is really setting himself on a course uh, that is going to lead to spiritual trouble, neglectful uh, of the means God has provided. If you're not drawing on the resources of grace that God has given you, then spiritually you will decline. It's like someone who isn't eating physical food, who maybe doesn't have the appetite for it. And you see, inevitably, the decline. They lose strength, they lose weight, uh, their health is damaged. And that's obvious to us. We know that. We know that as far as our bodies are concerned. And yet sometimes it appears we don't apply that to our spiritual life. That we don't feed on God's word the way we should. And then we become focused on other things. Remember Jesus In the parable of the sower, or the soils, really, it was about. And in one case, Mark 4, 19, he talks about the seed uh, that that fell uh, among the thorns. And he says it was choked by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. And they crowd in, and they choke God's word. And if we're not alert spiritually, that can happen. That can happen. Whatever we do receive of God's word, perhaps preached on the Lord's day or or read for ourselves, it doesn't really 
take root and bear fruit because we let all these other things become our priorities, the worries of life. There are legitimate worries of life. There are things that we have to deal with. A Christian doesn't sail through life with no problems and no anxieties. Certainly not. But those things can become the focus and God's word is squeezed out. The deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. We have other priorities rather than the word of God and the means of grace. And that is dangerous. That is when we are going to wander from the truth. And of course we have an enemy who wants us to wander from the truth. We have to reckon with the efforts of Satan to deceive us, to lead us astray. What was the first thing that Satan did in the Garden of Eden? He got Eve to question God's word, to have doubts about it, not to believe it. And he keeps doing the same thing. He is delighted when we have doubts about God's word and we let them fester. We don't deal with them. When we question what the scriptures say, the attitude of someone, I'll believe that, but I can't believe that. And the enemy is delighted when Christians do that. Of course, he will sometimes work overtly through false teachers who will try to lead us astray, who want us to follow their error. And nowadays, of course, with the internet, with social media, it is so much easier for false teachers to propagate their errors, their heresies very easy. It's not hard to find them. And we need a lot of discernment. There's a real spiritual battle on. We need to be alert to that. And we need to be walking closely with the Lord and bringing all of life under his authority. The wandering is something that can happen gradually. It doesn't usually happen all at once or suddenly. There's a warning in Hebrews 2.1. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And the word there in Hebrews 2.1 for drifting away is the idea of, of a boat slipping its moorings. It's not tied uh, firmly enough to its mooring post. And so it slips away and the tide carries it. And that can happen to Christians. If we're not on our guard, we can slip away. Not one sudden plunge into false teaching or rejecting God's word, but little by little, we can drift. Could that describe you today? Could there be a wandering, a drifting from God's truth. Perhaps not as interested in the word of God as you were, not as hungry for it, not taking it in maybe the way you did. Then you need to hear the alarm bells ringing. This is a constant danger. It can happen to individuals, can happen to fellowships of the Lord's people. You see that down through church history. 
we need to be on our guard. Constant danger. Secondly, James writes about a weighty responsibility. Scripture never thinks of God's people as isolated individuals. It's living our own personal spiritual life. Some Christians live like that. As if it was a matter of me and Jesus. Little thought or concern for, for others. But we're a community. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We are one in Christ, united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And so we belong to each other. That is how God has made us. And we can't live our spiritual life in isolation. We are made for community. That's part of being made in God's image. We're made for community, for the community of God's people. It's not an option. Ephesians 4.25, Paul writes, we are members of one another. That's a fact. And so we have a responsibility for our fellow believers. We can't just live our Christian life for ourselves or our own family. We have a responsibility and we are to have a concern for all of God's people in our fellowship and beyond it where we have opportunity. The fundamental command that Jesus gives us, John fifteen twelve, love each other as I have loved you. And the Lord makes much of that loving one another as he teaches his disciples in the upper room. We looked at it some time ago. The love that there is to be among his people for one another. And it's to reflect the love of Christ, self-giving, profound, passionate love for one another. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. Paul writes in Romans 14, 7, none of us lives to himself alone. There's no place in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, for ourselves alone. It's not a spiritual Sinn Féin, we might say, uh, in the, the terms of this province, ourselves alone. Never mind the politics spiritually. It's never ourselves alone, much less me alone. And one of the implications of that, of course, is that we can't ignore a brother or sister wandering from the truth of God. It's not a matter of indifference. It's not something for us to tut tut over in a corner and do nothing about it. If someone should bring him back, James envisages. There's a responsibility to bring back the wanderer, the drifter. And of course, elders have a particular responsibility for that. Pastors and elders have the oversight of all of God's people in the fellowship. Part of the duty that Paul sets out for elders in Acts 20, 28, keep watch over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
Keep watch over all the flock. That's a weighty responsibility. Wandering's not to be neglected, but James isn't writing just to elders, pastors, notice that. My brothers, in other words, he's writing to the whole congregation. And brothers, in New Testament terms, includes brothers and sisters. To all Christians, he's saying that this is something that we need to consider, to reckon with as our responsibility. Galatians 6.1, Paul speaks of any who fall into sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Temptation, the easy route, of course, is to say, well, it's not my business. It's for him, for the elder, for the pastor. Somebody else should do something about it. I'll sit here and complain and mutter about it, but I'll not do anything. Leave it to somebody else. But that's not the route that James sets out for Christians. We have a responsibility for one another. That's a difficult task, of course. That's why often we'd want to avoid it. That's why pastors and elders want to avoid the task sometimes. It needs sensitivity. It needs courage. We're called as Christians, aren't we, in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth in love. And that isn't an easy thing. Temperamentally, there are some, it's true not only of pastors, but some who are stronger on the speaking the truth and go a bit light in the love. There are some who are good at the love, but aren't too good at speaking the truth draw back from it in case they offend, in case they upset, because it must be loving. And the others, of course, you say we must speak the truth and whoever it offends, too bad. And there are those who can speak the truth in a way that would offend even those who agree with them. Speaking the truth in love is not easy. And yet it's love that will compel us to speak for the honor of Christ's name, for the health and the welfare of the erring Christian. Are we concerned that they're sliding away from God's truth, that they're turning away from what is sound and healthy? We're concerned for them. Of course, the preaching ministry of the word has an important role in restoring wanderers. And we never know, preachers will never know, at least in this life, how often someone who was beginning to drift, to wander from God's truth, was brought back by a sermon that they heard or by a word that was spoken to them. We'll not know that. Maybe we will know in glory. We'll probably know a lot more. The preaching ministry is vital, but that isn't all that the Lord has provided personal word is often needed. Personal word from a Christian friend. If we're drifting, if they see that we are turning from God's word. Of course, the the, the task, the size of that task, doing that faithfully, will drive us to prayerfully seeking wisdom, won't it? We'll say to ourselves, I can't do this myself. I'm not up to it. And we'll turn to the Lord 
for wisdom. And what did James say in the very first chapter? One of the first things we saw in the letter, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And that God will give wisdom. And here's one of the areas where we need wisdom. Because if we're speaking to someone wandering from God's truth, we may encounter resistance. They will not necessarily embrace us and say thanks very much. You might lose a friendship. There may be a coolness in a relationship. And there is that risk. Even the gentlest, most sensitive word may not be accepted. It may be resented. And yet, if we're concerned for the Lord's glory and we're concerned for brothers and sisters, we'll seek to speak the truth in love. If we're watchmen, we've got to be faithful. That's the language used in Ezekiel 3, watchmen. Watchmen who will warn of danger. What would you think of someone who could see that you were approaching danger and didn't warn you? You wouldn't thank them for that. And we are watchmen to warn Christians of danger ahead. If they're wandering from the truth, we're to warn. Of course, naturally you're closer to some Christians than others. And you'll not be able to carry out this ministry to every Christian in a fellowship. You'll be closer to some. And there'll be those that you can speak to in this way. Others, others may be able to speak to and help and minister to. The duty of the elders and the minister, of course, is to everybody. But you as a Christian, there'll be people you can talk to. People you'll be able to approach and raise issues about these things, to talk to spiritually. If you're not able to talk to anybody spiritually on that level, there's something wrong. You might be able to talk to them about the weather, about the rugby results, about anything, but not about spiritual things. If there's nobody that you can talk to about spiritual things, there's something wrong. There's a problem you need to address. And of course, There are those who are good at giving the counsel, but who aren't open to receiving. You find people like that. They're very good at helping others with the truth and speaking to them about these things, but you try speaking to them. If they're drifting, and maybe the shutters come down, and they don't want to hear. If we're going to speak to someone we think is drifting from God's truth... We better be those who are willing to listen if someone speaks to us. And so there is uh, certainly a heavy responsibility, a weighty responsibility on God's people. Are we ready for that by God's grace? Do we see how important it is for the spiritual health of God's people? It's a big task. Thankfully, at the very end, we have an encouraging conclusion. James doesn't leave us there just simply saying, this is what you've got to do. We think this is tough. We may get it wrong. Nobody in pastoral ministry has always got it right, I can tell you that. 
We make mistakes. We speak unwisely sometimes. We might say, well, don't want anything to do with it. It's hopeless. An encouraging conclusion. Of course, you know what I know. We're in an anti-authoritarian culture, aren't we? The, the attitude generally is, what right have you to tell me how to live, what to do? And, of course, the implied answer is you've no right. And there are many in our culture, and you can tell them nothing. That's not true only of younger folk. More and more set in your ways and you're older, maybe nobody can tell you anything. Not willing to receive correction. And yet James holds out for us the hope that by God's grace there will be those who will hear. And there will be those who will listen. There will be those who will be turned from error. Think of Paul confronting Peter to his face. Galatians 2, that must have been tough. To confront the apostle Peter because he was inconsistent with his theology. And yet Peter responded. And James ends the letter providing encouragement to us. If we are faithful in this regard, if we're concerned and we seek to bring the wanderer back to God's truth. He says, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What's James mean? Well, of course he is not saying that we have some sort of power to save anybody. Or that we cover sins over been so much in recent years about the cover-ups, even in church bodies. That's not what James is describing. We don't do the saving, and we don't do the covering. Remember we sang uh, there in the psalm, and the psalmist tried to cover his sin. He got no peace, but God covered. And this is something the Lord does. The Lord forgives sin. The Lord covers the multitude of sins. The Lord saves. So what are we? Well, we are simply channels of God's word, God's truth, God's love. That the Lord works through us as we speak in love his truth. And the Lord is pleased at times to work by his Holy Spirit, and turn a wanderer back, bring him in repentance, back to the truth of God, back to the Lord. And so he's saved from death. A multitude of sins is covered by the blood of Christ. That's the only covering that matters. That's the only covering that can cover no cover-ups, but forgiveness, cleansing. And it is a, a beautiful thing when we see that happening. When we speak to someone, counsel them, encourage them back to God's truth, and they listen, and they respond, praise the Lord, when that happens. And he is a gracious God. As John writes, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The wanderer was on a path that would end in spiritual death if he kept on down the road. And of course, the unsaved will travel that road right to the end. 
But if we are truly the Lord's people, he will stop us. And he will bring us back. And he will restore us and forgive us. That's the kind of God he is. We've sung about that in the Psalms today. He is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He's faithful to his promises. All those encouragements. And by God's grace, there will be those who respond. And will be drawn back, as it were, from the brink. And the Lord, and only the Lord, covers the sins, forgives them, and restores them. He's done it with all of us, I am sure. He did it when we were converted, and he's done it many times since. And it's a privilege to be a channel of God's word and God's love to wanderers, to seek to bring them back, and to see that at times he does bring them back and restores them, all for his glory. And when the wanderers restored, we don't pat ourselves on the back and think, did a good job there did that pretty well. All we ever say is praise the Lord, he did it. What a privilege to be an instrument and a channel for the Lord. All the glory is his. So James ends on encouragement. This isn't a fruitless task. This isn't a pointless ministry to seek to draw back wanderers and drifters. When the Lord blesses, they are restored for his glory and they're restored to useful service and maybe one day to draw us back to the Lord.